Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, join the Fab Foe, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. You may already know that SiriusXM brings you the deepest variety of commercial-free music for every genre and every mood. Where you hear the biggest names in talk, entertainment, and comedy, and hundreds of hand-curated music channels designed to fit every mood. Where you get news from every source. Where you can listen to the newly launched Fish Radio, in addition to Jam On, Grateful Dead Radio, Pearl Jam Radio, Tom Petty Radio, and many more. Where you can listen to top comedy channels such as Kevin Hart's Laugh Out Loud Radio and Netflix's A Joke Radio and Sports Talk Radio from Barstool to ESPN and more to keep you up to date on the latest news in the sports world. Most people think you need a car to enjoy SiriusXM, but you don't. Subscribe now to listen outside the car on your phone, online and at home and get your first three months for just a dollar. And if you're a Fish fan, which you probably are, you can get tour updates and shows being played, which are a good complement to our quick hits. Visit SiriusXM.com slash HFPod to see offer details and to subscribe and start listening today. SiriusXM, no car required. Hey everybody, it's Matt here with a quick hit for July 14th, 2019, night three at Alpine Valley, and the final night of the summer 2019 tour. Wow. Uh, We've got a special one for you today. It was a great night 
at Alpine Valley last night, as you all know. And an epic night like this doesn't deserve just the quick hit treatment, but we need to get a little bit more, shall we say, macro on this. This is going to be a big hit. Uh, We've got three special guests today, all of them coming from the world of journalism um, and all of whom have been on our show before. We're going to talk first to Tom Wassel, who um, has been on to do quick hits in episodes with us before. And Tom is uh, a sports journalist. He's on ESPN radio in Seattle. Uh, He told us uh, about his experience last night as he was on the way back to uh, Pacific Northwest this morning between flights. And then we're going to talk to two of our favorite music journalists, uh, Stephen Hyden and Rob Mitchum. And I think most of our audience is probably familiar with those guys, but you've probably seen their writing in Pitchfork and Up Rocks and Grant Land and maybe familiar with the podcast that Stephen has done, Celebration Rock, as well as his new podcast, Break Stuff, uh, which has just debuted this summer. That's a documentary about Woodstock 99. That's a great listen. So we're going to talk to all those guys about their experience at Al. Pine Valley, um, what made this such an amazing show, and the important question of can they do this every night, and if so, why don't they? Let's get into it first, and we'll go to our conversation with Tom. All right. Hey, everybody. It's Matt here. I've got uh, with us listener Tom. Tom Wassel. How's it going, man? Man, it's, I haven't even slept since last night. I've been, it's been trains, planes, and automobiles ever since we left the Alpine Valley parking lot, but well, well, well worth it. That's amazing. Um, so you're, you're heading back home to Seattle now. Uh, were you at Alpine Valley for all three nights? Yes, I was indeed. I was actually uh, at a Mohegan Sun before that, visiting my folks in Connecticut, and then we went out to Alpine, and uh, it just seemed like fish saved a lot up in that, uh, or whatever, they had tricks up their sleeve for that last night, and they just unloaded it. Yeah, so um, so let's let's just jump right into it. Uh, we talked a lot the last two days about Alpine Valley and the scene there. It seems like it was a good weekend for everybody. Um, what is if we look at the the show in total? What what kind of superlatives are you using around this? Well, let's put it this way. I mean, we'll just jump ahead into the second set to the Ruby Waves because that's the most important thing. I mean, the first set was really fun, well played, high energy bust outs. Obviously, I don't think anybody came away from that first set. Uh, with any kind of complaints, and we were all pretty fired up about it. Um, but then the Mercury started, the Mercury Jam started in the second set, and in, you know it was somewhat truncated, kind of going along with the theme of this whole tour. And then they get into the Ruby Waves thing, and each time it seemed like they were going to stop, they didn't. I, I feel like I've got this sort of built-in anxiety about them <laughs> cutting off jams now, but they didn't, and it just went up down back you know and around through the cosmos it was just nuts and i guess the way you know or the way i know that it was truly special is that like i was actually jumping up and down at one point and as i was jumping up and down i was telling myself oh my god you're not a person who jumps up and down you dance and you (laughs) sing along like you're that type of person you clap your hands you sing along or whatever but all of a sudden my hands were in the air and i was just like i was actually i was doing like jump Jumping jacks almost. It, it was crazy. I was just so inspired uh, emotionally that really to be reminded that this band can still do that. I think that that's, let's just say it, that's the big concern. You know, are they over the hill? What are they? This band could bust that out, that kind of jam, any night they want. That's my belief. I know that they can do that. And what they did was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. It was certainly the best concert going experience probably of my life and i'm still just floored right now that is amazing yeah it's it's funny two things you you mentioned there so i was watching from the couch and it, it like you said there were a couple different points where it seemed like the jam was going to be over um and and not even in places where it would be a letdown i mean i'm talking you know it's there was one spot like 20 or 25 minutes in right where it seemed like a natural ending point i actually like i had to like go top off my beverage and do a couple things so i paused the show thinking that the jam was over it was like a nice transitional spot to take a break for five minutes and i came back to it and then i was like oh my god there was like another 20 minutes to the jam 
um, it was crazy. But then the other thing was I like you, I mean, I, you know, I'll watch from the couch and, and I enjoy it. It's, it's certainly not like being there, but I, the same thing, I was up jumping up and down in my basement watching this just like felt like I was possessed. Um, and that's from, you know, however th- many thousand of miles away. So I can't even imagine like inside that pavilion, what it must've been like. Oh my God. Well, I was out on the lawn, not, not too far up actually. I was maybe, I don't know, 30 feet up dead center, like to, or I shouldn't say dead center, just to the left of where the soundboard was. Um, so the sound was really, really good in there. I have to say the sound was, was excellent. I mean, no matter where I was, but just the scene up on the lawn, as you were saying, like there were different points, maybe 13 minutes in and then 18 minutes in and then 25 minutes in. And then they were, they were down again and you really thought that they were going to stop it. And then as they picked it back up, like, People are looking at each other like, oh, what's going on here? Are, are we witnessing one of these all-time shows right now? Like, what are we in the middle of? And then that thought disappears, and you just you get sucked back into the music. And it's just, I mean, again, I for one second there, I felt like I was watching something from 1997. I really did. Like, I think of that Piper from uh, Albany, 12, 12, 97, the way that that thing just, you know, bobs around, it goes up, it goes down, it's fast, it's frantic, it's this, it's that. I felt like I was watching that. And I mean, it was, it was a gift. It was just an absolute gift. Yeah, I think the band was definitely having fun. I, I don't know if you could tell like if there were screens there for you to look at or anything like that, but from the webcast, yeah, there were. Each of those sections where they were kind of making a transition to like a new thing, Trey just had a huge smile on his face. Like he knew exactly what they were doing to us. Yeah, he did. And I mean, like I feel like that was more obvious to me afterwards when they um when they went I mean when Iculus happened. I mean, come on. I mean, at that point, I turned, I turned around to my friend. I'm like, are they about to drop an effing Iculus on us right now? I mean, I mean, most of us, most fish, I haven't seen them for 20 years. That was my 43rd show last night. I, not only had I never seen Iculus, I had never even considered the fact that I might see Iculus at some point. And he, the fact that they did that after what we had just seen, I was like, whoa, okay, this show is going like into the upper strata now. Like now I know where we are. And you could tell like Trey uh, during the end of YEM, right before the vocal jam where he's just dancing around like Mr. You know, club dancer, Mr. Cool. He knew, he knew what he had done. He knew what he had just dropped on that audience. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was pretty obvious um, that they were having a good time. Yeah. I mean, even, um, you know, when they got to the point in the show where it's like they were, pl- you know, we've talked to them about them playing chess with the audience before and like knowing exactly what they're doing. They got to the point where it's like a couple minutes before curfew when the show's ended the last two nights and Trey jumps in immediately. He's like, ah, oh, you, you worried we're not going to play anymore? Don't worry. Don't, don't worry. Um, right, like he exactly. just, he knew exactly what, what was going on. Uh, and then you, I mean, you talk about no, you know, fourth quarter slump. I mean, when your fourth quarter is that insane with Iculus, Buffalo Bill, Yem, and the whole madness with the, the marriage thing, catapult and contacts. It was uh, just just fun, you know? It was fun. And, and I, I, mean, I can't believe I saw a contact twice in a week. I, I think I saw that in Mohegan the other night. Um, but, you know, and you mentioned the fourth quarter thing. I, I, I've seen a lot of things on Twitter and on um, on uh, fish.net on the forums, finding the whole, the quarter system objectionable. I happen to, I think that that's a really helpful sort of lens to look at it through because sometimes they do burn out in the fourth quarter or sometimes the second quarter or the first half of the first set or whatever tends to slow down. And uh, this one just blazed on all the way through. Now, can they do that every single night? I think they can. My question would be, if they can, if they have that ability, why don't they? I, I don't really know. But maybe that's what makes last night's show special is that you don't get that every time out. And that's the reason why we keep going back and back and back. Yeah, you know, it's that um, to, to keep with the sports stuff, you know, we always talk about it's like going to see your team and like, you know, that they're capable of, you know, you have an ace that can throw a no hitter and home run hitters and everything like that. And, and, you know, they don't do that every night. It's just the stars have to align. Right. Yeah. I I think that what happened last night, it was like, our team was the underdog and 
a strong, I guess they would be up against a stronger team, right? And then it was one of those games where the underdog just went out there and destroyed the favorite. I mean, they went out there and just killed them like 47 to, to 3 or something like that in a football <laughs> game. You know, it's like, whoa, yeah. like we expect our, we always expect our team to win, but we didn't expect our team to just thrash him like that. So yeah, that's what it felt like. Amazing, amazing. So we shouldn't completely overlook the, f- the first set, which was filled with bust outs. Um, were any of those in particular that kind of stuck out to you? Uh, uh, I thought that, you know what, Vultures really rocked. I don't think of that as like a rockin' tune necessarily, but it definitely did. Um, I was, I had the misfortune of eating some chicken fingers before the show started. And so about in the second quarter when they were played like Glide and about to run and I think I missed something else in there. I was up in the bathroom on the most disgusting toilet I had ever seen. Um, so I wasn't too thrilled about that. But by the time I got back, um, I was standing there with one of those rent a cops who happened to, who was like videoing good times, bad times, like bobbing his head. So at that point I knew we we're, we we're, uh, you know, we we're, it was a successful show. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, Tom, uh, I know you're trying to get back home, so, uh, we'll wish you safe travels and, uh, thanks for, for coming on here and telling us about your experience last night. Yeah, man. Play some of that Ruby waves jam. Will you? Absolutely. We will. All right. Thanks, Tom. That was uh, great to hear about your level of excitement and uh, how it, it kind of got the, the crowd stirred up last night uh, during the, the epic Ruby Waves jam. Now let's go to our conversation with Stephen Hyden and Rob Mitchum, who were together at the show last night. Uh, they've got some great takes on uh, not only the Ruby Waves jam, but uh, the song selection last night and how this show is going to fit into the broader fish history. Okay, I am here with two very special guests. We're continuing our uh, journalism theme on the show today. We've got two friends of the pod, uh, Stephen Hyden and Rob Mitchum. How's it going today, guys? Doing really well. Excellent. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, so our listeners, you should know these two guys by now. Uh, in case you're unfamiliar, um, Stephen is uh, a writer, writes for uh, uprocks.com, and uh, has written for Pitchfork and Grantland, and wrote a couple of amazing books. And uh, also just launched a new podcast this summer called Break Stuff, which looks back at Woodstock 99. Um, so excited to talk to, to Stephen. And then uh, Rob actually is a birthday boy today. Happy birthday, Rob, oh, um, who tweets at Fish and has written a lot of great uh, pieces for Pitchfork and, and other places, uh, talking about fish music and indie music and some of the crossover there sometimes. So um, last night we were watching the show from the couch and um, realized as a group that you guys were hopefully both there and uh, got excited about the opportunity to, to talk to you about the show, particularly the way that it unfolded. Um, it seems like yesterday when we woke up, the debate on the internet was micro jams versus macro jams, and does fish still have it, or are they are they not able to reach some of the heights that they have been able to? And I think it's safe to say with the show last night that um, most of those questions are out the window, and a lot of faith has been reaffirmed in the band. Let me ask you guys, um, being music journalists and interfacing with a lot of your colleagues who are not necessarily um, into the fish thing, how would you you describe this type of an epic show to your peers to try to help them understand um, the impact of what happened? Maybe, Stephen, we can start with you. Um, I mean, I think I would just emphasize that unlike pretty much any other band that I can think of, especially a band that has been around as long as Fish has, that this is a band that takes, you know, dozens of risks every night. You know, the typical band will, you know, work on a repertoire, you know, a set of songs, and they will orchestrate their set so exactly what the sort of bright moments are, you know, and, 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 and you know, like, they know that they play the rock song with the guitar solo, if the, if the two guitar players put their backs together and, you know, go on their knees, the crowd's going to go crazy, you know, and it's very predictable, and it, and it works really well. 
fish obviously does the complete opposite of that. And, you know, on this tour, it's been really exciting to see them uh, play songs that they haven't played in a long time, to introduce new songs. And sometimes it doesn't work, you know? It's risky to do that, but you never feel like uh, Fish isn't uh, trying. You know, you never feel that they're on autopilot. You know, if a show doesn't work, it's because they're attempting to do something great and maybe it doesn't come off. And last night, I think, is obviously an example of them trying something risky and it's really coming off great. I mean, in the first set, you have, you know, it's like Bust Out City in the first set. You know, so many songs that they haven't played in a long time. Uh, songs that, uh, I mean, it was amazing being in the audience and just seeing people respond uh, to the songs that they were playing. Uh, I'm trying to remember, like, what was the second song they played? Oh, uh, Olivia, uh, Olivia's Pool. And which I believe, what was it like? They haven't played that in like 22 years. Well, yeah, and they they adapted it into the song Shafty uh, on the story of the ghost. Right. So they haven't played this or this arrangement. It's essentially kind of an, like an old forgotten song. Yeah, I had to explain all this to Steve at the show because you know <laughs> he's a noob and all. He was. I was like, why, why is everybody going crazy for this song? I'm like, oh, Steve, Steve. <laughs> well, it was it was amazing to see you know like it was instantaneous like for a lot of the crowd like just to go to go crazy for that for that number, uh, and then you know then you have that epic Ruby Waves jam in the second set, um, which was amazing. I'm I, I'm just sort of rambling here. I hope, I hope this is good, but I, I was just thinking like, um, there was a moment in that song you know, around the 20 minute mark where they start doing that little, uh, reggae section. And I remember feeling like, okay, they're going to start segueing into a different song. And you could kind of feel like the crowd was maybe expecting that too. And then after about a minute, there was like this crazy reaction from the audience. It was, a, it was, it was the kind of reaction that you'd expect if like they started playing tweezer or chalk us torture or something. It was like a really sort of ecstatic reaction. And it was the crowd, I think realizing that they were keeping the jam going <laughs> and, and that it was really kind of starting to go to a, a, a really awesome place. Cause like shortly after that, they started playing that awesome sort of black sad sounding riff, like right. over that reggae section. And, I feel like that was like the pivot point in that jam, like where it went from something that was like really cool to like, Oh wow, they're going to maybe do something potentially all time great in this, in this song. Um, and it's amazing. Like if you listen back, I was listening back to it on the drive home this morning and you can hear like it's the 21 minute mark. You can hear this sort of surge from the audience. It's not as loud as it was in the, you know, being there last night, but you can kind of hear it in the background where they just started cheering. Like people started like throwing like glow sticks and, you know, it really was like, it was like people hearing like an old classic, but they were reacting to this jam, uh, which I've never really seen that kind of reaction before to like an improvisation at a fish show. But it's like people, I was going to say people were so dialed in last night. Like that was the most dialed in audience I've ever been in certainly at a fish show and maybe at any show like people weren't talking there weren't there weren't like drunk guys yelling stupid shit at least like not around us everyone was either dancing or like totally sort of glued to the band and i don't know if the band sent that or what it was but there was such a connection between the band and the audience last night um it, it, it was just a really powerful feeling you know, and it really kind of came, it really culminated in that second set. Yeah. You described something that I, I think I've, I've seen at certain epic shows or certain big jams where there's that moment where the crowd suddenly realizes, Oh, they're, they're going to keep going with this. Like we thought maybe this was over. Yeah. And that there was several of those moments in the Ruby waves um, jam last night, Rob, you've seen the band a lot more than Steven and have been seeing them for a lot longer. Um, I think you've probably experienced a number of those moments. How does last night's show stack up to some of the great shows that you've seen in the past? Yeah, I mean, I think it was pretty immediately apparent that, that this was my best 3.0 show, and I think would be for 
almost anybody except for a select few they got to see some of the other big 3.0 shows probably like you know somewhere like top 10 of the 70 shows i've seen i mean there's still like 90 shows that i am never gonna you know bump out of their high places but this was you know a special show in league with you know it's sort of uh, like 8198 at Alpine. It reminded me a lot of that show. Some of the fun, like late 90s Deer Creek shows I was lucky to see. Um, nothing touches Palace 97. Nothing will ever get close. But hey, this was like in the running, which is, you know, we keep saying it over and over again, but this deep into their career that they can pull off a show and uh, jam that impressive i mean it's just we're we're playing with house money here <laughs> it's yeah. ridiculous that this is still even a possibility and yeah I, I totally agree with steve saying that the audience was super dialed in and you know even having seen a lot more shows like i haven't seen that kind of i mean it was it was two ways too trey always talks about that you know he feeds off the energy of the crowd when he's picking the songs he talks about that in almost every interview um, last night was one where it just felt like there were no missteps at all in like set list calling or how long things went on. And like, I, I, the only time in the entire show, I think I kind of, you know, not in a very, like, uh, not in any sort of angry way, but where I was like, ah, maybe that wasn't the right choice was when he kind of cut Mercury short <laughs> to go into Ruby Waves. I was like, oh, I could have done with a little bit more Mercury there, but yeah, if he wants to do Ruby Waves, all right, I guess we'll roll with it and see how it goes. <laughs> and so, but everything else he called, I thought was like dead on for the energy of the crowd. And even though they were pulling, you know, some really, really, really deep cuts, like people there knew what they were like immediately the pit was going nuts you know like three notes into spock's brain so i, I don't know what it was last night alpine is huge and you know it's not going to be all aficionados but for some reason last night was like a crowd that was uh very very ready to to go deep yeah, so so Stephen, you tweeted earlier today, or maybe it was last night after the show, that that was one of, if not maybe your greatest live experience ever. When you say that, is that the combination of you know the crowd, the energy, everything, or were you speaking purely just about the the performance of the band? Yeah, I mean it was everything. I mean it was a beautiful night. I mean Alpine Valley is such a you know a lovely venue, and and you know last night it like the humidity like went out of the air at about seven o'clock or so. I think, you know, Rob and I were coming in to sit down around that time. And there's like a little bit of a breeze. And like, when you walk into Alpine Valley, you just see like all the rolling hills in the background. You know, it's like, it's a very sort of splendorous environment. And everyone around us was friendly. I, I was hugging this guy named Jake standing on the other side of me all night long he was a good dude uh like i said like there were no there's always like at least like one dude who's like too wasted you know usually around you who's like shouting the whole time there was none of that everyone was into the show everyone was really friendly and then the band just played great i mean that first set was like um it was so playful you know and they were it was clear from the beginning that they were not going to be playing a predictable set you know like a little bit toward the end they started playing some other songs from this tour like about to run which has become one of the real kind of showcase songs from ghost of the forest um love hearing that song um and then you know and then the second set you know think of what rob was saying before you know we were talking about what songs were still on the table for this run uh, they, you know, like I remember on Friday night they played a lot of songs that I love to hear live, and it was almost like I didn't want to listen to that show because I couldn't make it to the Friday or Saturday show, and I didn't want like FOMO to like take over. <laughs> you know, I was like, I was like, oh man, I would have loved to hear to have heard Free or you know, I would, like Say to Me Santos is like one of my favorite of like the newer songs, and I think they played that. Uh, as the encore, I think it was Saturday they played as the encore. So I was like, oh, I would have loved to have heard that. Um, but um, it was just, 
It was just great. And, and again, I mean, I think it's always worth reminding yourself with fish that it really is special, like what they do, like the risks that they take every show, um, are really, uh, yeah, it really makes them unique. Like for any band, um, like even the Grateful Dead, you know, who obviously, you know, they're the other kind of band that's on their level that, you know, plays these sorts of shows. You know, even they, I don't think, played like as big of a, 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 as big of a variety of music at this point in their career that dishes, you know? Um, I mean, at this point, Jerry Garcia, you know, had died at this point in the Grateful Dead's trajectory. They are 35 years into their career. Um, so Fish, I think, they really is sort of unprecedented what they're doing. Um, and to see them be able to pull off a show like last night, it really is exciting. You, 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 you still feel with this band that they have the potential to hit like the highest mark, you know, 35 years in. Right. And, uh, you know, it's really great. Yeah. So, I mean, you guys have both sort of mentioned this, which is that even if you take the Ruby Waves jam out of the equation from last night, and let's just say you just replace it with a run-of-the-mill, down-with-disease or ghost or something like that, it's still an amazing show. I mean, and not just because of bust-outs, but because of the performance and the flow and everything like that. That's kind of led to a question that's on a lot of people's minds this morning, which is, for folks that have been a little bit disappointed in the tour, I haven't been that disappointed. I think there's been good stuff in pretty much all of the shows with, with a couple of really, really good shows uh, in the middle of the tour. The question that's coming up is, you know, if Fish can do this on any given night, first off, can they do this on any given night? And if they can, then why don't they? Rob, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I I hear that argument. And I mean, people say the same things when they drop like, you know, a 45 minute jam in the sound check, but then they don't play anything longer than 10 minutes during the actual show. And it's like, I think like, I wouldn't want them to force themselves to do that every night. Like I would rather let them do that when they they feel like it's the moment. <laughs> and so then, you know, make it like compulsory that they have to play a 38 minute jam in every show and i feel like you know it, it's gotta it's gotta feed off the energy uh you know not just of the given night but of the entire tour and i always say like when shows like this happen you gotta look like back you know several weeks to kind of see the seeds being planted for this and you know people not as many people as i think uh, we perceive it as being on the on the internet, but you know some people have been upset about the number of new songs or saying that the Ghost of the Forest material doesn't really fit. It's more like Trey solo stuff than Fish songs and all this. But you know this is the kind of show you get, or the the Ruby Waves Jam is the kind of thing you get when you let the band experiment with new stuff and find their sort of comfort zone in it, and then all of a sudden it just blooms like spectacularly. <laughs> Uh, and that's what's so exciting about following this band, since we live in a time where, like, even though there were only 30,000 people at Alpine, there were, you know, however many tens of thousands more watching at home and listening to the show this morning. And I would hope that everybody kind of, you know, shared in that experience last night as like just this like amazing climax to a tour that has been, you know, sort of up and down. But that's because they're trying new things. And I, I just don't understand you know, people who don't want them to try those new things and don't want them to experiment uh, with new material and new songs and, you know, figure out, you know, when the moment is right to do something like this. Yeah, look, like, I mean, like, just, just to interject here, like, just to, you know, reiterate what, what Rob was saying, I, I, mean, I was touching on this earlier, but I mean, like, most fans that are at this point in Fisher's career their tours are disappointing because the bands are sort of, you know, going through the motions, you know, or they're on autopilot, you know, they're playing the same songs all the time and it's just boring to see them. And with fish, even if like, like this been sets this tour that I wasn't crazy about, but it wasn't because I felt like they weren't trying. It was because I felt like maybe the songs weren't coming off or like there wasn't a flow to the set, you know, but I always feel like, well, they're trying something here. You know, and if you play different sets every night and you're also trying to play a lot of different kinds of songs, 
you're going to have sets like that maybe that don't totally work. But because they take risks still at this point in their career, that's when you have these payoffs. And to build up, it, it would, in Rob's point too, about sort of working new songs, uh, working them up and kind of trying to develop them. I mean, I think we're really seeing that this tour, I feel like with Mercury, which has been a song that they've been working for, you know, a couple of years now. And I feel like it's really blossomed like in the last year, like to the point where like we were talking last night about how we both wanted to hear Mercury a lot. Like we were like, we hope that they play this tonight because it really has become like a great showcase in the second set. And it's because they've been committed to playing that song. And there's a lot of like songs that they've introduced, you know, in the past year that I think have the same potential, but the only way you work them up is by playing them a lot. And, uh, it makes it more fun to follow this band than you don't have to hear. <laughs> I mean, we all love the songs from the nineties that are reliable war horses, but if it was always tweezer and it was always ghost and you know, the same sort of half dozen songs that we all know, it would get boring. Um, and I, I feel like the new material has really been a kind of a jolt in the arm for this band. I mean, it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that Ruby waves was like the launching point for that you know, this amazing jam, you know, that's like a new song. They're excited to play it and they're excited to see where it goes. There's still a lot of potential for discovery in songs like that. Yeah. And, th and that's a good question. Let me ask you a quick follow up on that. Cause you got to something I was just thinking about. Do you think that, um, the Ruby waves being the big jam was just sort of a natural evolution of interest in the new tunes? Or do you think that there's a conscious decision there to say, all right, we want to, we want this song to be adopted by the fan base. Let's give them what they want so that it becomes a little bit more endeared. I mean, I feel like they get energized by playing new songs and if it's a song that, I mean, I'm sure, you know, I, I'm sure they still like playing Tweezer, but I, they've played that how many times in their career? You know, there's probably a feeling at some point where it just gets harder to reinvent that song. Whereas if you have a new song that you haven't played as much, there's maybe just a sense of excitement that allows you or makes it more stimulating to be creative with it. And, you know, I think that kind of plays off again, like how great the audience was last night, like how receptive people were hearing obscure stuff, you know, I'm sure that, that that seemed to light a fire under the band, you know, and inspire them to maybe take things in a less expected direction because, because they knew that the audience would be with them, you know? So I just feel like that's probably just a natural sort of reaction to being inspired by new stuff. I mean, I, I don't know how you feel about that, Rob. Yeah, and I think also, you know, Ruby Waves, we've seen, I think, again and again on this tour, is kind of like a, a, a good type of song for their improvisational style right now. And also just sort of like their, I guess, sort of the sonic texture that they're really excited about right now. Because it kind of has that, like, page like sort of synth tone built into the actual song and the jam spinning out of it. The sort of initial jam seems to kind of, you know, continue that, that feeling, which they've been exploring a lot since like Baker's dozen summer. Um, and then I think it kind of just kicked off last night. You know, people have been talking about this micro jam thing, which I hadn't even heard of before, like Saturday, I feel like, but all of a sudden that's what we're calling it. But, you know, sort of this fast modulation jamming style um, that, you know, until last night was leading to, to shorter jams, but they kind of kept doing that in this like monster of a jam last night. Like if you look at Mike Ahmad's uh, sort of uh, breakdown of the key changes, I think there's like seven or eight different key changes within that 38 minutes. And I kind of tried to do my own sort of back of the envelope, like how many sections were there in this jam? And I came up with like, you know, you could easily say there were a dozen different sections in that jam, which when I compare that to like the other big jams I've seen, uh, like sort of late nineties monster jams that would go 20, 25 minutes, usually only add like two or three themes explored in that time. Um, this is almost goes back to like 
94 sort of hyper jamming where they were switching it up every two minutes. But at that time, it was a little more experimental and all over the place. Um, these were like all, you know, very fleshed out melodic ideas in all of these like, you know, 9, 10, 11 different themes of the jam. So it's like, you know, this it really was sort of like, I feel like the culmination of what they've been working on all summer. Uh, just you know, coming off in a big way, and the new music sort of you know teeing that up for them. Can I just say like I, there's some parts to that? I, I don't know if like Trey just has like had like riffs in his arsenal that he's been playing around with that he just like emptied into that because there's especially that like, that reggae section that turns into like the Black Sabbath riff. Like I hope they strip mine that and turn that into a song. Like that riff is like really cool. You know, I don't know if that was spontaneous or if he had that playing around or what, but like this part to that jam where I'm like, you could like take this and build a song around it. You know, there goes like a lot of ideas. That's how like, yeah, in there. I, I was kind of thinking that as well because it's all, and that, that exact section that you mentioned when they were in the reggae thing and then he busted out that it was almost like a black Sabbath riff or something like that. It's like, has he had this floating around in his head or a while for a while, or is it just the magic of what's going on here that he instantly was able to to pivot towards that? Um, but I think you guys are right. It's sort of the culmination of these smaller, very deep jams, and then reassembling them into a longer piece uh, we, that we kind of got to witness last night. Let me ask you guys just to um, to wrap things up here. Um, when you look back from a high level on the the summary twenty nineteen tour, um, what do you guys? What's your takeaway? Do you think there's a lot of re listen value or specific? things that, that you're going to uh, come back to uh, frequently. Um, Stephen, how about we start with you? I think so. I mean, Rob and I were talking about this last night before we went to the show, that I feel like every show this tour has at least like a two or three or four song section that is really great. That um, I would, that I've already returned to, you know, and you know, I think, I think there's shows that have great sets, I don't know. There, I know, like the Charlotte show is, is is well regarded, and I think like the Father's Day Bonnaroo show is well regarded. I feel like generally, it seems like there's like one really great set and then like one kind of weird set, you know, for a lot of the shows. Um, but I don't think that there were any clunkers. You know, I think there were great things at every show. So I could definitely see returning to like certain sets or like sections of sets for sure. But again, I feel like with, with fish, um, I feel like, I mean, maybe this will be kind of looked at as like a transitional tour, you know, because I think they were trying so many things and not all of it came off, but you love to see them trying stuff. Like I'm not like a big Petra chore fan, you know, but I like that they're trying that song and I can see how that could eventually turn into something really great. Um, you know, so we'll see what happens. But I, I think there's like a lot to be listened to on this tour. Yeah. Rob, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, sort of my working theory on this tour, even before last night, was that uh, I haven't actually figured out the numbers on this, but I, I can't imagine there was another tour with this much new material, like less than a year old. So going back, including Halloween and Ghost of the Forest. Um, I mean, that there was at least a dozen new songs, probably close to 20 since all 10 Casbah Vaxxed songs got played. Right. And then about, I don't know, eight to 10 goes to the forest songs. Yeah. I mean like the tour that it reminded me the most of was summer 97 when they came back from Europe, they had all, all of that, what, you know, became story of the ghost material, which now are all like central core songs of the catalog. But at the time I felt like people were like, what is this? Yeah. (laughs) Like, I remember seeing Vultures in Summer 97 and everybody being like, what is this like heavy metal riff song that they're playing? Um, or, you know, what is this like uh, limb by limb song? Like things like that, that in retrospect, you're like, wow, that was a great tour. They're playing all these great songs. Uh, but at the time, they didn't really know where to put them. They didn't really know how to stretch them out. So there was a lot of, you know, sort of awkward, like, uh, you know, growth. Uh, how do we work this new material in? And I feel like this tour was kind of like the modern version of that and just as you know as those songs became more welcome and more established you look back on that era a lot more fondly than maybe some people did at the time uh i think people look back on this tour and be like 
yeah, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't quite there there yet, but you get to hear some really interesting early versions of songs that we now like, you know, want to see at the next show we go to. So, I mean, I wish like '97 there was a fall tour that was going to build on like what they've accomplished this summer and really you know continue the workshop in that material. Uh, that doesn't look like it's going to happen, but you know. You do what you can, and I think, yeah, we're going to look back. We, one thing we didn't talk about, the one song I really wanted to hear last night that we didn't get to was uh, Beneath the Sea of Stars. I thought the Mohegan Sun version of that was like the most interesting fish jam in years. And yeah. I think probably more interesting than last night's Ruby Waves. It's all kind of fresh, but like that jam sounded like really new direction for fish. And I don't know if that's just a dead end or if they're going to keep going in that direction. And I'm really excited to find out. And I think, you know, so in as time goes by, this summer might be looked at, you know, as you know, the start of a new chapter, uh, which is is a great place to be. Yeah, it's, it's, we're definitely excited for Dix and this to see how this will all play out uh, after they give it a couple of weeks to breathe and, and come back to uh, to the same approach. But we're going to leave it there. Um, we're going to let you guys get back to your days and decompress a little bit. And Rob, you can go celebrate your birthday. Um, thank you both for, for joining us. Um, once again, Stephen, we mentioned your new podcast, Break Stuff. Um, where can people find that? Uh, it is available on Luminary. Uh, which is a subscription service, but if you sign up now, you can get a free month. Uh, so you either sign up now or you can wait a month and binge it if you want. It's an eight-part series. Um, but yeah, it's on Luminary. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you both. Uh, glad you got to catch that epic show, um, and we will talk to you both again soon. Yep, thanks, right, Matt. Thanks. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. All right, our sincere thanks to Stephen and Rob for uh, making that happen for us today, joining us to talk about such an epic show. With that, we're going to wrap up quick hits for this summer. Uh, we want to thank everybody for listening, playing along every day. We want to thank our sponsors who have been with us along the trip, um, SiriusXM, Nugs.net, Ear Dial, Earplugs, and Passion House Coffee Roasters. Thank all of them for their support, which helps us uh, churning these out every day uh, so that you can can connect with other fans the day after a show and hear different takes from folks that were in the room. We have a couple of great episodes lined up for you over the next few weeks to, to bridge the gap between here and the Dicks run. Uh, we're going to talk next week about the tour in general with some special guests and then a few more episodes to, uh, to come over the next six weeks or so. So thank you for always listening to us, uh, for making us a part of your day when we push out these quick hits and we will see everybody very soon.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh, yeah. And pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out.